Welcome to CRE Success, the podcast, where we help people working in commercial real estate achieve their professional goals. Check us out online at CREsuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now here's your host, Darren Krakowiak. Well, hello, welcome to episode 14 in season two of CRE Success, the podcast. My special guest today is Vic Bagia. He is the CEO of Verum Consulting. Vic and I have teamed up on a number of webinars, including how to win more commercial real estate work from large corporate clients. We also co-hosted Keeping Clients Loyal in Commercial Real Estate. So I know that he's a very knowledgeable thought leader in our industry, and you're going to get a lot out of hearing his thoughts in just 30 seconds. Now, before we do get into that, I would like to welcome you to our next webinar or our next live workshop. We just hosted one a couple of weeks ago where more than 150 people joined and hundreds more watched the replay for the seven keys to success. And if you'd like to be invited to our next one, just go to cresuccess.co. At the very bottom of the homepage, you can enter your details and I'll make sure you get all the information about our next workshop. And now it's time for the interview on CRE Success, the podcast. Vic, welcome to CRE Success, the podcast. I'm happy to be here, Darren. First thing we do in all the interviews on this podcast is step into the virtual elevator and hear our guests give us their elevator pitch. So Vic, I have to ask you, who are you? <laughs> well, I am Vic Bangia. I am the CEO of Verum Consulting and the OutsourceUSA.com network. Virum is a firm that specializes in corporate real estate and facilities management outsourcing advisory and strategy and operations consulting. I bring real estate service providers and corporate clients together through an outsourcing process that's built on trust, transparency, and commitment. I like to say that Virum is the e-harmony of outsourcing because we build these relationships first and we build them to last. Outsource USA is a group of independent companies that are part of my network, and together we are focused on the employee-centric workplace of the future. Wonderful. So the main part of Verum Consulting's services is really um, helping large corporates make outsourcing decisions and uh, appointing commercial real estate service providers for a, for a contract period. Would that be one sort of key service that you provide? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And corporates tend to make these decisions, which are typically five-year or longer decisions, on relatively poor quality data. They also make them when they don't actually know the service providers very well. So the way I design my process is that we bring the service providers in on the front end, even before we create the RFP, to see how they interact with the client to help define the actual scope of work that will be built into the RFP that goes out to the street and to give the service providers a sense of connectivity to the client and relationship building on the front end. I know that there are companies that specialize in procurement support, but I'm not sure if there are many or any others out there that specifically focus on corporate real estate. Were you a first mover into this niche? No, I think my position in this area was a little different. While there are other people that are in this space, oftentimes they do put themselves out there as an extension of a, corporate a corporate's procurement department. I often think of myself as really an extension of their HR department as well as their procurement department. I partner with the procurement organizations, but I'm not there to replace them or to substitute for them. And do you see yourself as in between the service provider and the client or 
as more of, you mentioned, not an extension of procurement, but an extension perhaps of HR. Is your role more aligned to the client side because that's who's paying the bill? Or do you really see it, hey, I'm here in the middle and I'm just trying to get the best outcome? No, I exclusively represent the client and the client's interests and needs. So I'm oftentimes in a little bit of an adversarial position with the service providers, especially when having been a service provider in my early years, understanding the way that they come to the table and the way that they're pitching their solutions oftentimes aren't don't match what they what they can actually deliver. So I have to keep everybody honest, but I also have to keep my client honest. We have to put together a scope of work that is clear, achievable, and realistic, just the same way that the service providers have to present a solution that's clear, achievable, and realistic. But I do focus all my efforts and spend, my alignment is with my client, which is I- the end user. I'm thinking about when I worked in tenant rep and my role was to facilitate a process to represent the tenant. And sometimes landlords who weren't successful might be inclined to hold it against, you know, the tenant rep or me, even though it wasn't my decision. When you're representing your clients, do the so-called bridesmaids, the second and, and third run providers, do they hold it against you? Do they understand that it's ultimately the client's decision? How does that all sit with them? And how do you carry on those relationships when people are obviously going to be disappointed with certain outcomes? Yeah. After a few beers, everybody's friends again. I think, (laughs) you know, there's some bitterness, obviously, because I do know all of these people, everybody who's in the business development, corporate services part of these organizations, they're all friends of mine. We've been colleagues for, you know, 25 plus years. And so when they don't win and they come to the table expecting because they know me or because they know the client that they have a better shot than their competitors. You know, there can be some bruised egos and some hurt feelings. But at the end of the day, we do do a debrief with everybody that did not come in first place. And, you know, everybody walks away understanding a little bit about what the driver for the decision was. And I remain impartial. The data and the analysis and the way we do all the evaluations, that's what determines the outcome of the decision. So does the decision include a recommendation from you or is it just, hey, this is where the data is pointing and then you present that and the client makes the decision? It's a little bit of both. I would, well, I'd probably back up a little bit and say it's a majority of the client and the data and it's a very democratic process. So we do a lot of surveys along the way. You know, the entire real estate team is involved in the evaluation process. I do a very behaviorally based, both subjective and objective qualification. The client's procurement department will more than likely look at the company and the financials, but there's a lot that goes into the decision. It's not just me making a recommendation. I will probably put a recommendation in my business case based on the data that I've collected and some observations I've made along the way. But I've been overruled in my recommendation and I've been wholeheartedly endorsed for my recommendation. Got it. So what's the primary reason that you decided to start Verum Consulting? Well, Verum is the Latin word for truth. And I spent a majority of my career sitting in conference rooms with a bunch of other leaders because I was in the leadership roles at uh, a lot of these service providers. And we would make plans for the year and everybody at the table would nod their head and agree with the leader that they were on board with the plan and the action and the initiative. And we would fail. And we would fail because those nodding heads were really without commitment. And I felt that there was there needed to be a way to achieve team alignment and team commitment to any project. 
And in order to do that, you have to get to the truth. And getting to the truth means to actually reveal your own weaknesses and your own shortcomings and where you may be a little blindsided. So I came up with a process that is also an acronym of the word VIRAM, which stands for Validate Assumptions, Eliminate Obstacles, Recast Expectations, unveil a new strategy and manage the implementation. So it's V-E-R-U-M, which is the process that I use to help teams become better aligned and to take those implicit and implied needs and turn them into explicit needs. And also to get rid of fears and biases and other issues that may derail a project or an initiative. And I found that that all these nodding heads that I used to sit in rooms with, now when they nod their heads, are actually fully and formally committed to the process. So I started Viren because I wanted to bring truth and team alignment and motivation and enthusiasm to these types of initiatives. And it just felt right to do it in the area of real estate outsourcing predominantly because I felt a lot of companies were making these big decisions and having long reaching implications. So I felt that there was a a big ROI if you could get that right on the front end. And did you come up with the name Verum and then figure out that V-E-R-U-M process? Or did you have another name first and then realize that you couldn't get a nice process out of the letters in the word? You know, I don't know if it was a chicken or the egg situation, but I do know that I came up with the word Virum first, meaning truth, before I came up with the acronym. I initially, when I started the company way, way back in 2008, I did start the company out of a sense of anger and frustration. So, you know, I sort of pounded my fist and said, Virum, you know, truth, we need to, we need to bring truth into consulting. We need to bring truth into this industry. And then I started thinking about the marketing side of of my business. Well, how do I market this, this whole novel concept, you know? And, and I thought, well, you got to have a little bit of a a wordplay or uh, or something that's memorable. And so I said, well, why don't we take Virum and figure out something to do with it? And so that's how the acronym came up. And that's how the, the Virum process came up. Love that. Going all the way back to the beginning, you didn't start in real estate, right? You started in IT. Is that correct? IT. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So my bachelor's is in computer science, which is, well, I'll even go a step further back. I was a pre-med. <laughs> when I started my college journey, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a cardiologist. And about two and a half years in or so, I, I realized that most of my peers wanted to be a doctor only because they wanted to be wealthy, not because they cared about people. And I said, well, that's the wrong reason to do this. And so I just got very disillusioned with everybody that was surrounding me in the profession. And I had taken a couple computer classes and they were fun. So I said, all right, maybe I'll just switch to computer science. I ended up getting a degree in computer science, which was also a largely a math degree because there was so much math and and engineering classes that I was was taking that I ended up graduating with a bachelor's in computer science. But by the time I got finished with my degree, I really didn't like computers either. (laughs) So here I was not liking you know, medicine, not liking computers, but I've got a degree in computers. So I guess I have to go get a job as a, as a programmer, which is what I did. I started out as a programmer for an oil company. Well, the industry owes a debt of gratitude to that oil company because they're the ones that saw fit to elevate your responsibility to cover real estate, right? Yeah, in a way. they. Uh, so I was a programmer and I was programming different databases for different divisions within the company, the science and technology division, the chemicals division, the risk and insurance division, and the real estate division. And the risk and insurance and real estate divisions were full of fun people. 
the real estate division mostly because they would let me basically do whatever I wanted. And I was designing databases for surplus property disposition and actually coming up with the ideas for surplus property disposition. And they said, well, you seem to have a knack for this real estate stuff. And I said, well, I love it. This is really cool stuff. You know, you're doing oil company real estate, which is fun. It's, you know, some of it's contaminated, some of it oil fields and bulk plants and terminals and chemical plants. And why not? This is good stuff. And then at the same time, as I was, you know, doing these databases and working on in the computer organization within the oil company, I was working on my MBA. And as soon as I finished my MBA, I also noticed that the real estate division had a uh, position available as a, I think it was what was the title of that job? I think it was just a planning analyst. But anyway, it was up in the real estate organization. And I walked up there and I said, hey, I want to interview for this job. And they wouldn't let me interview. And I said, why can't I interview for it? And they said, why? Because if you want it, it's yours. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to interview. We know you. And we'll teach you everything you need to know about real estate. We'll send you to Cornet. We'll get you, you know, fully immersed. But the way we look at it is if you join us, we get a free IT guy. You know, (laughs) so that was all the spark I needed. I jumped over into the real estate uh, department and within probably six years, I was running corporate real estate for that company. Uh, It's a company called Unical, which is now part of Chevron. And I got to do some amazing things. I got to do huge land sales. I got to convert oil fields into industrial property. I got to convert golf courses into uh, retail uh, developments. I got to do all sorts of fun stuff. I got to clean up and all sorts of contaminated properties. Well, I can certainly hear the passion in your voice about the work that you've done on the client side. And of course, you've had a very successful career on the service provider side. Given you're now, I guess, in between them, but representing the client with the work that you do, I'm wondering if you're able to settle a longstanding question. Is the grass greener on the client side or the service provider side? Uh, there's septic tanks on both sides, so the grass <laughs> is green equally. You know, and I and I say that you know, I mean, it's a joke, but at the same time, it's true. You know, there's up, there's an upside and a downside to both both life on the service provider side and life on the client side. But I think the education that I received on the client side was really fundamental. It's how real estate fits into the strategy of the company, and that's going to be different for every company. How can you align the real estate and the business so that you know both are moving in parallel as the business moves forward is there a way to create optimal efficiency in the portfolio and then on the corporate side the challenge is how do you balance competing agendas because there's so much politics that exists on the corporate side about office space about commute distance between the bosses home and the office you know there's so many things that are really really dynamic and interesting about being on the client side the challenge for that on the client side is that organizations tend to be very tight the ability to move up is not always there i mean i was fortunate to be able to get six promotions in nine years and go from a planning analyst to being the head of real estate for that organization so i was really lucky but other people spend you know 20 years and are still in a transactional management role or a project management role client side without a lot of you know movement. On the service provider side, though, 
there is great movement. If you're uh, working on the service provider side, like I did, I was the account leader for Boeing. And later on in my career with CBRE, I was the best practices practitioner. So I got to work with clients at Allstate, at uh, Scott's, at uh, Cardinal Health, at Nationwide Insurance, at DHL. And so I'm going from company to company to company and learning about all these different companies and how real estate fits into the strategy of that company and how to help them align their real estate and their business and create optimal efficiency and all those things I talked about earlier. That was really cool because all of a sudden I, I didn't have just one view. I had multiple views into multiple companies. And so that was what I really loved about being on the service provider side. And I've been on both. And I think a lot of people who really, you know, enjoy this work can actually easily move from one side to the other. Well, I do think that having been on both sides makes you uniquely equipped to one, do the work that you do, but also to answer some questions about how commercial real estate service providers can best position themselves to be successful with winning work from corporate clients. So is it okay if I ask you some questions about that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I know this question is a little bit open-ended, so I'll try and hone it down a little bit and make it more specific. What are you looking for when you're evaluating a service provider's ability to serve one of your clients that you think is critical to the ongoing relationship being a successful one? Ooh, that is a good question. Well, so obviously when I have to put myself in that frame of mind, I have to put on my corporate hat, right? Even as a consultant, I have to do as much as possible to think like my client. And in order to think like my client, I have to think about the time where I was the corporate real estate executive at Ameriprise or at Unical, and I would receive calls from service providers. And I can tell you what turned me on and what turned me off about those calls that I would receive. And what I'm looking for is for service providers to engage, not to sell. And there's a, there's a distinction, right? So it's, it's being inquisitive. It's asking questions. It's understanding who I am and what my company is about and what we're doing, rather than saying, hey, I've got this market opportunity for you. And so I think the more that service providers can seek to understand and engage with the client side, I think the better off they're going to be. And when we were talking about my business now, I'm looking for that same spirit. The, the service providers coming to the table, not to win the business. Obviously, the ultimate goal is to win the business, but to really get to know the client, to understand the client, to engage with not just the leader of the real estate department, but the people within the real estate department mm -hmm. to show that they understand the company and what the company is attempting to do, because it's not a secret there. There's a press out there that says what the company's plans and vision is, but so, you'd be surprised. Some service providers just don't do their homework. And so I'm looking for service providers to do their homework, to engage, not to sell. I want to see them interact with the client. I want them to, if they are being asked to provide Input, make it very diagnostic, not solution-oriented, but diagnostic. So almost as if you're going to the doctor with an ailment and asking, hey, I've got this pain here and this challenge here. What do you think I should do? And what's, what do you think is wrong with me? Not, can you fix this? Um, and I think the clients have to be just as uh, sensitive to that and not go to the service providers expecting a solution either. What mm. I want to start with is I want dialogue and I want communication. And then when that's happening, I'm, I'm observing all of this stuff. You know, as, an, as a consultant during the outsourcing process, I'm watching, 
you know, behavior. I'm watching body language. I'm watching eye contact. I'm looking for uh, signals and signs that show me that this service provider means more than, you know, I, I can't wait to win this business. They're really thinking, I can't wait to get to know this client even better. I think there's a couple of things there. Firstly, I think that we need to think about from the service provider side, what is the next step? And while the ultimate outcome that we are looking for is to have a business relationship and to win the work, that's not what the point of the first meeting is. The point of the first meeting is to, like you say, to diagnose, to understand, to start growing that relationship. So I think that's a really important point. I also like what you had to say about from the other side, from the client side, You can't just stick an RFP out to the market and expect everyone to be able to respond. You've got to spend some time helping service providers understand what it is that you need. So they're not trying to just, you know, ram some cookie cutter solution into uh, as a way to respond to the RFP that they've issued to the market. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the old days when I was at companies like CBRE and, and and the company United Properties, which is now part of Cushman and even the even even Realogy when I was running global client solutions, you know, we would respond to RFPs as a service provider by basically saying, let's just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And the reason we would do that oftentimes was those questions that were in the RFP were ridiculous. They were they they were asking us to throw everything against the wall. They weren't specific precise with respect to what the client actually needed. And half the time, we never even got the chance to go in and sit down with the client and go through a discovery process of our own or a white or yellow pad session or a whiteboarding session where we could learn a little bit more about their real pain. Oftentimes those RFPs were, you know, these sort of generic ones that procurement departments somehow found either on the internet or some peer of theirs, you know, said, hey, we use this one at our company here. Why don't you use the same RFP? That's never going to work. And that's why I don't even write the RFP until we've already had meetings with the with the service providers, because you invite those types of questions, you know, garbage in, garbage out, if you will. And so it's really important to when you're responding to the RFPs to to dig deeper, because what's in the RFP is often very generic and not even remotely related to the uh, client's real pain. Well, we've heard the pitfalls of not diagnosing, of rushing to a solution or just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks. What's a common mistake that you see service providers make when they're preparing a written proposal or when they're presenting at the final round? There are different problems and challenges in those different phases. So in the RFP itself, I think the, the answer to how we do it versus how we will do it for you is there's a nuance there, right? How we do it just says, well, this is our process. And the client's going to read that as saying, okay, I understand what you do, but is this what I'm going to get? Or is this just your marketing spin on, you know, on your proposal response? So make sure that the response is specific to that client, like, you know, how you will perform this for this particular client. And and then I think when it comes to the in-person presentations, there's a lot more room for error. You can either come across as being a know-it-all and almost dismissing the client. You can you can almost insult the client in a way by by appearing to be, you know, the more professional team and making the client feel, you know, like they're not professional. And so I think that sentiment sometimes comes across. And that's why I said some of my relationship-based approach to this was, you know, really 
help my clients be able to articulate when they feel like a service provider came in and was a little bit too big for their britches. So coming across like a know-it-all, hiding the truth is, is actually not a good thing. You know, sometimes, you know, they, you can put a proposed account manager on, but if you bring in this rock star team, and then that's not actually the team that's going to perform on the, on the account, that's a little bit of a bait and switch. So I don't really like to see a lot of that. I think if service providers bring in vague answers, that's challenging. And if they're not transparent about the way that they're making money, I, everybody knows that everybody's in this to make money. The service providers have to make a profit, but if you can't show where that money's coming from or what goes into the pricing, that could be a challenge. I do know that within these pro formas, sometimes service providers will subsidize one offering with anticipated revenue from another offering. So if that's happening, let the client know, because ultimately your price might look really good for a management fee on the facilities management side, and, and you might undercut your other competitors, but it's coming from somewhere. And at the end of the day, this isn't a business where, you know, there's going to be a huge margin between the high cost and low cost providers. We're talking about, you know, in a $5 million a year fee, we're talking about companies that'll come in at 4.87 to 5.2. While that still may seem like a lot of money, it's it's really just in a way, to use a colloquial phrase, robbing Peter to pay Paul, because the money within there is based on their projections of transactions, their projections of the number of projects they'll make, and then profit margins in each of those service deliveries that may go to offset a number that wins them the business because they can make it look like they're so much cheaper in one area than the other. Okay, before we wrap up, Vic, I want to make an observation, then ask you a question. So um, my observation is that vendor selection processes are becoming more rigorous and perhaps more impartial because there's more stakeholders. They're ultimately based on key criteria that is measurable. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yeah, there is, well, it's bifurcated, if you will. There's a, a certain amount of criteria that's that's hard and fast. You, it's pricing, you know, it's resources and, and the cost for that, you know, and that includes like labor rates and burden and things like that. There's market fees and any rebates. And so a lot of that's financial. But I think in my process, I try to make 20 to 30% of the decision-making criteria for selecting a service provider behaviorally based. In other words, you know, we look at the criteria more of, you know, how did we evaluate their level of commitment, empathy, trust, transparency, communication skills, uh, sense of humor. You know, did they come, are, are these, you know, can you, can you envision yourself being stuck in an elevator with this person for four or five hours or, or does that just freak you out? Not, and maybe it freaks you out. Maybe it just freaks you out because you're in the elevator, but it's about the person themselves. If you have to trust this person and you have to be in a relationship with them for five years or longer, you better like them. Yeah, I can think of some people who I would rather spend that time in an elevator with than others, um, although I probably <laughs> don't want to spend that time with anyone in an elevator for five hours. But yeah. um, okay, I think you've kind of asked, answered my question, but you know, personal relationships that a service provider has with key stakeholders, are they becoming more important? Are they less important than they used to be? Or are they just as important as they've always been? I think relationships count for a lot. You know, trust is, again, one of the things that I mentioned early on, trust and transparency. So in a relationship-based business, trust is going to play a big role. So if you do have an established level of trust with the client, that does bode well for you. It, you 
will be able to stave off any low-cost bid competitors as long as that trust level is there. But trust has to be, I guess these days, proven. So you have to continually you know, reinforce that. If you lose it or if you haven't nurtured it, then you may be at risk. Well, Vic, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast. Our listeners will be able to connect with you on LinkedIn and also go to your website, which will be included in the show notes. And I want to say thank you as well for being a guest on this episode of CRE Success, the podcast. Well, Darren, it's been my pleasure. For more information about our guest, visit CREsuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now a final thought from Darren Krakowiak. Hey, before we go today, I do want to share with you something that I shared in the Seven Keys to Success workshop a couple of weeks ago, and also in the Keeping Clients Loyal in Commercial Real Estate workshops that I co-hosted with our guest today, Vic Bangia, and that is about client loyalty and how to measure it. Now, I think some people in our industry are really focused on measuring client loyalty when it comes to the NPS, the Net Promoter Score, or Client Satisfaction Surveys, and certainly there is good information to be gleaned from those sources. However, just because you've got high scores on those measures, it doesn't mean that you're mastering client loyalty. So I'd like to challenge you to have a look at your pricing. Are you charging premium prices or are you having to discount heavily in order to attract and retain clients? Are you working for clients on an exclusive basis, an exclusive basis on projects, an exclusive basis across portfolios and also across service lines? And also, are your clients sending you high quality referrals and are you doing repeat business with them? Because they are measures of client loyalty that will ultimately hit the bottom line. I hope that gives you some food for thought. Thanks so much for listening and I will speak to you soon. Thanks for listening to CRE Success, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to leave us a five-star review. For more information about the show, just check the show notes on your podcast app or visit us online at cresuccess.co. 90% of the world's data was generated in the last two years. Credia is a business intelligence and analytics tool for commercial real estate professionals. Using real-time insights, track key portfolio metrics and benchmark against the market so you can make faster and well-informed decisions. With live dashboards and bespoke reporting, impress both your executive team and your property clients. It's time to turn data into your most valuable asset with Credia from Released.